Welcome to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. The number of students who speak English as a second language in Fairfax County, Virginia, is one of the highest in the country. In fact, there are almost 36,000 English learners in Fairfax County Public Schools classrooms. How does this impact instructional best practices? Let's learn from the experts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Most students who learn English as a second language enter a program called ESOL. ESOL stands for English for Speakers of Other Languages. To learn more about the challenges and rewards of ESOL instruction in Fairfax County Public Schools, I have four guests. Let's go around the table. If you don't mind, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the students you serve. They're known as ELLs, English language learners. Angela, would you go first? My name's Angela Rabette. Um, when I think about who are our ELLs, um, we have over 37,000 ELLs in the county. There are 202 languages that are spoken by the English learners in our county or our students who are of a language minority family, which means they speak a language in addition to or other than English. Our top language is Spanish. About 22% of our students speak Spanish. Um, the other languages in the top 10 are Arabic, Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, Urdu, Amharic, Telugu, and Farsi. It's really interesting that we know that our top language is Spanish, but every school has a different population of top languages. So there's a real diversity among our L's and there's a diversity among where they are in the county. Um, one of our elementary schools, Limbrook Elementary, 81% um, of their students speak Spanish. It's their largest population. Only 4% are native English speakers. They also have some students that speak Vietnamese, Urdu, Amharic. They have, a, I think, one or two children that speak Chinese and maybe one or two that speak Arabic. If we look at a different school, Colvin Run, 11% of their students speak Chinese. They have about 3% that speak Farsi, um, about 25 that speak Korean, and 2% speak Spanish, which is the reverse of Lindbrook. Um, we have another school, Colin Powell, they're 34% native English speakers and 27% Korean speakers. So every single school has a different profile of what their L's look like. My name is Erica Meadows and at, I think Angie already touched on a lot of the information about the different language groups we have, but I think what's just so exciting and fascinating about living and working in Fairfax County is that diversity um, among mm -hmm. our English learners. It's not just one language community. And even if we do just look at one particular language community, even within that language community, we have tremendous diversity. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just, it's a really exciting community to live in and I think we we all benefit so much from the richness that all of our students bring to us and as ESOL teachers right this is nirvana this is a great <laughs> this is a wonderful place to be um, something else I think that's interesting about our English learners is at the elementary level 
Um, Seventy percent of our English learners receiving services overall in the county are at the elementary level. And then within elementary, um, at the primary level, over a third of our students are eligible to receive ESOL services. So when you think about what instruction looks like, that, um, that language-rich environment that we create in primary is so important. I'm Jane Fliegel, and when I think about um, English learners at the secondary level in particular, I really think about kind of the diversity of student profiles we have. So um, we have a lot of recently arrived L's who've just gotten here and are, are new to the American school system. We have students who were born here and been here their whole lives. Um, we have what we call long-term English learners who are students who've been receiving ESOL services since they first entered school basically and now they're entering secondary school and they're still receiving ESOL services and they're still at a level three or four. Um, and thinking about how we're serving those students is as important as how we're studying, serving our recently arrived students. And, and that profile of a student, both at the elementary and secondary mm -hmm. level, is such an important component to think about when we think about who are our English learners. I'm Caitlin Saxton, also thinking many languages, but many ages. We have mm -hmm. K-12, and some of our some participants in our high schools are adult learners. So we do have an adult high school, and English learners are there as well. And can an English learner have um, received multiple services? Of yes. course. <laughs> of course. So what is, what is that? I, um, can you give an example of what that might um, be like? Well, you might have an English learner who's receiving both special education and ESOL services, special education, advanced academic, and ESOL services, mm -hmm. ESOL services, and ac advanced academic services. So it could run a whole gamut. So there's a lot going on. Uh huh. And the sizes of our <laughs> programs vary too. We have secondary schools that have 32 English learners, and we have secondary schools that have almost 800 English learners. So the amount of ESOL teachers will be different, and the programs will look different based on each site. By the way, for those who don't know, like me, Telugu is spoken in India. I had to look it up. Today's episode is a snapshot of ESOL instruction in Fairfax County. Now, before we go any further, can we bust some myths about English language learners? Are there any unfair assumptions when it comes to L's? Caitlin? Many of them. Okay, so <laughs> where, where do we begin? We, ha we had a discussion about assumptions before we came in, and the only assumption that the four of us are comfortable making about any learner in any classroom is that students are there to learn. Uh, there are a lot of misconceptions around our English learners. I think the biggest one is to underestimate what they can do because they aren't proficient in English yet. Our kids come to us and many of them were very high performing in their home schools. And here they're often seen as not capable even needing remediation because they're not fluent English speakers. It's People think that because they don't speak English, their intellectual abilities are impacted. Well, they're not. If I took you to Saudi Arabia and put you in a school and asked you to read or to take a test, you would struggle because you're not yet an Arabic speaker. Our kids come here and they are very capable. They just don't speak English yet. What myth busters are there? The biggest one is that 
speaking slower and louder will help your English learners. Um, you know, our, our English learners have so many skills that may not yet be visible in English. Um, their funds of knowledge may be different from a native English speaker that's been immersed in an American culture, but their experiences are still valuable. We need to find a way to reach them, not just speaking louder and slower. That does not help your English learners. I think another myth I would love to bust is the, um, the misconception that if parents don't come to school events, that it's because maybe they don't care as much as other parents do. And we know um, from experience and from research that you know our families have made tremendous sacrifices to bring their children here and to bring them specifically often to Fairfax County um, because of the opportunities that their students will have here in the United States and, and in Fairfax County. Um, but often culturally, um, Many families come from a culture in which parents are not invited into the school to participate. So the expectation is that your students attend school, but that you, you may or may not actually be welcome in the building. So this is a new, a new awareness for a lot of our families that we do want our parents in the classroom. We do want them to attend events. Jane, any more myths you want to bust before we move on? <laughs> I think a myth I would like to bust is that our students are lazy and don't care about school because the opposite is true. These are some of the most hardworking kids I've ever met. They care a lot about school. They may not be demonstrating it in the traditional way, but they work hard and they care a lot. It's dangerous to assume that students aren't engaged because they're not participating in a way that you expect them to participate. A student might need more wait time or might be processing or might be waiting for that time where they could process in their home language before they're able to do that in English. They might need some scaffolds or differentiation to be able to access materials and engage in a, in a more robust or a fuller way or in a way in which a teacher in an American school system would expect for them mm -hmm. to participate. Participation in different um, countries looks different. Mm -hmm. I also think a myth we would like to bust is that they can't because they're a certain Thank proficiency you. level. All students can meaningfully participate in any class, including mathematics and science. Level one students, level two students are also capable of doing or being successful in algebra one and biology and chemistry and geometry. I think as teachers, we have to think about our own method of instruction. Are we setting up instruction so that they can be successful or are we teaching the same old way and then assuming they can't because we haven't designed the instruction to allow the children to access it and participate. We can't blame them. We have to think, we have to take a, a long, hard look at what we're doing. And a lot of times people or teachers might feel that instruction has to change because of the English learners that are in their classroom. And it's really reflective of young people everywhere. Learning is starting to look different. different. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, I think it's important to remember that all learners are English learners. We're not all coming into a classroom with the academic language that we would need to succeed in, a, in some of these advanced courses or, or new vocabulary. But I words. think even as a 
So I was an elementary classroom teacher before I became an ESOL teacher, and I used to, when we taught science, we would teach the kids how to speak like a scientist because there are different ways to say things as a science, scientist. And then we get to math and say, okay, now we need to talk like a mathematician. And many of the students were native English speakers. So they are also learning what it looks like and sounds like academically. Erica, can you tell us more about current research and the identity of English language learners before we move on? I was referencing the work of our former colleague, uh, Dr. Jennifer Santiago, who is now the LEAP coordinator in, a, in another Northern Virginia school division. And she conducted her dissertation research on the self-identity of newcomer English learners. Mm -hmm. um, and she studied teenagers who were new to the United States and, and really got to know them and spend time with them and understand how their identity was developing as students. And her findings were really interesting and had a, a lot of implications, I think, for all of us, um, even in elementary, although her research was with teenagers. But I think some of the biggest takeaways were that these students had an identity in their home country around um, career goals and aspirations. Many of them had planned to prepare for professional careers, for example, in their home country. And yet, um, when they came to the United States, were faced with very different um, perceptions that others had about them. And I think some of her under other findings were around the importance that um, the important role of the teacher, and how the teacher, the students really felt that teachers in general are here to help them, and that education is the pathway to success for them. And she also found that negative interactions with teachers could have a negative impact that lasted not only through the school day, but actually carried over into the home life as well. So I think it was, it's really important to um, emphasize those teacher-student interactions and relationships and how important they are. What's happening in our own school system when it comes to models of instruction? Well, the Fairfax County model of instruction is our LEAP, the Language Instruction Educational Program. And it has four components, pathways to proficiency, systems of support, content language and literacy, and English language development, or another acronym, ELD. Through these four components, we seek to provide services for the whole child or the whole student and their family. When we're working with teachers and, and facilitating professional development. We, we seek to encourage teachers to form deep and are deep and respecting relationships with their students to really get to know a student, what their post-secondary goals are, what their likes are, to learn as much about them as possible, to be able to incorporate that into the lesson, to make lear um, learning individualized and meaningful for all students. I don't think that that's entirely true just for ESOL students. I think that really extends to all learners. How do we make learning yes. interesting and accessible? We know that we want all students to be collaborative, to be um, deep and critical thinkers, to be global and ethical citizens. Our, our learner, our population, ESOL students, really come with so many rich experiences. How do we tap into our students and make them leaders in their classrooms? So how do you do that? Got to know them, right? <laughs> so, how, so if I know where you're from, where your interests are, what you like to do, what, 
what experiences you might have had because I've taken some time to talk to you about that, then I can pull that out of you as a teacher. This conversation, Sandra, makes me think of our um, taping session we did with Libya when she was talking about as a as an art teacher she knew it was important to build relationships with her students and then she moved to she changed schools and she was in a school with a very high L population and she really was intentional in building relationships with her students. Let's share a bit of that audio from Libya Doman as she describes her effort to connect with English language learners. One of the things that I heard a lot when I came to this school was it really makes a difference, the relationship. Relationship really makes a difference. And I used to think to myself, well, who doesn't that make a difference with? You know, relationships matter no matter where you are. But I really realized something. Taking the time, maybe during the prep period, to have lunch with different kids, it definitely gives the, the kids an opportunity to learn a little bit more about me, that I'm a human being, and it gives me um, entry into their lives. And I notice that when I take the time to have lunch with them, it's a really big difference in, how, in their willingness to take risk in my presence. And we know that as we build our language skills, that's a huge part of it. The kids have to be willing to take risk with you. Jane, how can secondary school teachers make time for L's? Their time structure, their class organization is just so different than the elementary level. And I know a lot of secondary teachers feel the pressure of the content that they have to transfer to their students and how important that is. And so sometimes you can feel that pressure and get a little lost in that pressure. It's different in how you can build those relationships, but I think it is just as important as it is in elementary school. And I think it is easy. You know, it's part of setting up your classroom the school year, creating a positive classroom culture. Um, really taking the time to build relationships with your students, making sure you're greeting them at the door as they're walking in, even if they're only with you for 45 minutes a day, you can take five of those 45 minutes to get to know your students, to build up trust, to build up rapport between you and them and them with your students with each other um, so that you have a really strong classroom community. And I think, well, I know many of many, a majority of our secondary ESOL teachers have strong relationships mm -hmm. with their ESOL students. This is something that is important to our teachers when we go and see, we see this in classrooms. We see lots of small group instruction. We see teachers following up with students about what they read in a journal, journal asking them what they did on the weekend, noticing haircuts, asking how lunch went. Um, these are, and they're little things that you can do, because you're right, at a secondary level, you might be balancing 150 students. Mm -hmm. So how, do, how can you make those, those nano connections? And after a while, those small connections add up to a very big and, and meaningful one. So there's teacher training involved. This is what you're an expert in. What does training look like at the school level? It happens differently in different buildings. Sometimes teachers start talking in the workroom or in the coffee room or in the parking lot maybe on the phone. I don't know how it starts, but you in some buildings, teachers start and they initiate this uh, CT conversations or book clubs on their own. And I think one of our most successful models for professional development over the last few years has been something we call L Innovation. Mm -hmm. And it really honors where schools are. I mean, if we expect classroom teachers to differentiate 
for students, we should be doing the same for our schools as well. We recognize that every school has a unique context and a unique set of circumstances and community members. And L Innovation is a professional learning model where um, the school teams, leadership teams join us for two days of professional learning around second language acquisition and working with English learners as well as sort of a guided data discovery of their own school level data. And then the third day is the piece that's most powerful and that's where the school examines their own English learner community and the needs of their students and they decide on their innovation. So their change idea is originated from within the school and then we work with that school team to help facilitate facilitate that change in the building. And it's been really exciting. And I think one of the things that I really like about Ill Innovation that it encourages is not over, only that innovation for your specific school, but that collective responsibility, that it's not just the ESOL teachers, that those teams are an administrator, it's an ESOL teacher, it's content and classroom teachers, maybe it's a counselor. So it's really a whole group of people looking at the whole school, knowing that we're all responsible for the student success. Mm -hmm. Um, and helping them all move forward. Um, and that collective responsibility piece is just huge, and we want to encourage that and support it. It's interesting, I think, so there are 142 elementary schools, and we've had, I think, 40 go through L Innovation now? I'd have to yeah. look up the number, I don't remember exactly, but one of the schools has, their ESOL team has worked really hard in CLTs to help build their classroom teachers' capacity to meet the needs of the English learners in the buildings. And so through the elevation process, they determined that they had not done anything to support the school specialists, like the music teacher, the art teacher, the PE teacher. And so their elevation project was to support those teachers and build their capacity to work with ESOL, with ESOL students. Because you think about it, they see every single English learner in the building through the course of a week. And they decided that it wasn't enough just to support the teachers in their building. They reached out to other schools in their pyramid and invited their specialists in oh, for wow. the training so that they had a little specialist CLT to go through the training with. And it was really effective. And we were excited to see that it had reached beyond their school walls. It's interesting that you mentioned the role of school specialists such as PE teachers or music teachers. Here is an art teacher. We have already heard from her once before, and she talks about her approach to scaffolds. And I noticed that at this school, it's really not uncommon for multiple of the kids to be at an English um, proficiency level of one or two. And that is a very different environment to work in. It's a lot harder when you're not really sure if kids are understanding what you have to say. So I realized that I had to do a lot more scaffolding. I needed to really think about um, various ways that I would introduce sentence stems. Sometimes the sentence stems will be simpler for some kids. For some of the kids who can handle a greater level of complexity, I might you know, make a more complex sentence stem. Um, one of the challenges that I've experienced transitioning into the school where the majority of the students are English language learners is making sure that I don't scaffold too much where I'm closing um, their responses. I still want them to be creative and critical thinkers. 
So I want, I've had to really work hard to think about ways to um, acknowledge where their language skills are, but also acknowledge that they have a lot of background knowledge so that maybe I don't know how to tap into it yet. Scaffolds are really a temporary structure. If you think about the scaffolding on a house, it, once the house is built, the scaffold is not still there. The builders use a scaffold as long as they need it, but once it's no longer needed, they take it away. Scaffolds um, in education are the same thing. They're put in place for a student while they need it, and when it's no longer needed, the scaffold is taken away. Um, some of the scaffolds that we might recommend are things like sentence frames. And a sentence frame is uh, the beginning of a sentence to help a student sort of get started, especially for an English learner. Sometimes it's hard to get that first word out where if you give them a sentence frame, such as the story was about, they can fill in the rest of the sentence. It can also help them move from more simple sentences to more complex language. That's one type of scaffold. Another one might be to provide labeled pictures so that if they're not sure what a cumulus cloud is or a stratus cloud is, they've got different pictures they can refer to to help as they do their work with their peers or as they listen to the teacher talk. Um, others, do you want, what are some you other go? scaffolds? Yeah. So scaffolds can be organized in different ways. Yes. I think what's mm -hmm. important to remember about the scaffold is it's designed for the needs of the learner. Mm -hmm. So we often hear from teachers, I need to know what scaffold to use. Just give me a scaffold that I can use. That's true. Yep. But it really depends on what the needs of the learner are. So you might have sensory supports, graphic supports, um, linguistic supports, right. or even behavioral supports. We often, um, sometimes students come to us with different behavioral expectations of mm -hmm. a classroom setting. So often what might be perceived as a behavior issue is actually just an instructional or a scaffolding issue where a student perhaps needs that visual support that Angie mentioned to be able to understand what the behavioral expectation is. So it really depends on the needs of the student. Um, that, that's the primary consideration in then mm -hmm. selecting the appropriate scaffold to use. So in the upper grade levels, what are what, how do the scaffolds work? Because you have a self-contained environment where you use scaffolds, and then you have math and chemistry and well, they also use scaffolds, yeah. and I, th okay. I think it's important to point out that there's scaffolding and there's differentiation, and they're used oh, the interchangeably, interchangeably, but they're really different. So differentiation refers to the idea of uh, modifying instruction to meet a student's needs, where scaffolding, as Angie said before, is really designed to be taken away. So if I'm in, an, in, an, in a classroom and I have a reading that's assigned, I might differentiate that reading and assign a different reading to a student, or I might scaffold that reading by providing a graphic organizer or many different graphic organizers to help st support students process a reading. Yeah, well, and I think about some of the things, some of the things I used to do when I was in the classroom to support my learners, and I spent a long time co-teaching English 7 and English 8, um, and we would have novels that our students were reading, and our students had different levels of needs in being able to access those novels. So I think about when we were reading The Outsiders, and um, we had a group of students who were reading it in their home language. So some of us were reading in English, some of them were reading it in Spanish. Um, we had one kid reading it in French. Um, we had some of them listening to it while they were 
reading it. Um, so we really targeted how the students were interacting with the novel. They were all reading the same novel, but it was how they had access to it. And then by the end of the year, we were at a point that we were able to take away a lot of that. We didn't have students necessarily listening to an, a book anymore. It was a different book by the end of the year. Um, but they were still able to engage with the class novel. So I don't mean to sound stupid, but if they're reading a book in French, Spanish, or Italian, is the discussion in French, Spanish, and Italian, or is no. the discussion in English? The discussion's in English. Yeah, so they would read the novel in their language, and we would talk about it in English. And so they were able to engage. We did lots of great, when we were talking about characterization, they did the, they did group work on like body biographies, describing the characters of the outsiders. And those conversations, the students were engaged in really deep academic conversations with each other, talking about the characterization of each of these different characters um, in English. But it was because they had, had the opportunity to really grasp it in a way that made sense for them. Um, so they could then take that to English. And, for, and I guess there's so many challenges for teachers because somehow they have to assess understanding the material. Are they writing the material? Are they speaking about the material? Because assessment is critical. Well, yes, because assessment <laughs> drives instruction. You have to know where they are before you can figure out where you need to take them in their learning. And as you would scaffold or differentiate a lesson, you could also scaffold or differentiate an assessment. How can you provide an opportunity for students to show what they know? How are you setting them up to do that successfully? So if I was having students explain maybe a life cycle process, and they were at the beginning stages of English proficiency, I might hand them pictures and let them put them in order. They're showing me they understand the life cycle process. Mm -hmm. Where if I had a child who was more proficient, I might ask them to write the different stages of the life cycle, because they would have the English to do that. Both children are showing what they know. Well, I think Sandra, you bring up a really good point about assessment because often assessment measures are designed for native English speaking students, mm -hmm. right? So when we look at assessment results, we're making faulty assumptions about our students sometimes. We have to ask ourselves, is that assessment really demonstrating what the child knows about the content or is it really measuring their English language proficiency? And so for us to be really thoughtful educators, we need to understand how language proficiency may be accessing that student's access to the assessment, their ability to process the questions mm -hmm. that the assessment is asking, and also their ability to produce responses to that assessment. And so I think that, again, that collective responsibility piece is very important that classroom teachers and ESOL teachers and reading teachers and math specialists are all working together in a building to really understand that assessment piece as it relates to English learners. And that's part of the evolving role of the ESOL teacher. Um, the ESOL teacher is now sitting on CTs providing some counsel as to thinking about those questions on, on assessments for that very reason. Is this really assessing knowledge or is it assessing language? Yeah, we're 51% language minority. It doesn't mean, so what that means, it's like, we don't like the term language minority, but it's a federal term. 51% of the children in Fairfax County come from a home where a language in addition to or other than English is spoken. These kids are bilingual and bicultural, so we also have to think about, as we're providing them access to education, is are the tools we're using reflective of who they are and can they connect to what we're trying to teach them? 
Well, and that kind of touches on one of the misconceptions Angie mentioned earlier that students can't act, do it because of their language proficiency level. And that's just such a faulty assumption and thinking about not only can our students access grade level content and grade level standards, they should and they need to be. And we are required exactly. by law to provide them with access to those grade level standards and to provide ways for them to access it. Um, so it's a really important thing that we have to think about. Are we doing right? what's right by the student as a human being? And also, are we doing it in accordance with what is expected of us by all of these laws and all of this history? And where our future might lead us to. So just go around the t table. Tell us what your advice is or what your thoughts are when it comes to what you do. So in order to have equitable, equitable outcomes, we really want to see opportunities for our English learners. And uh, I had an experience this summer where we had uh, co-created a project-based learning um, summer program at one of our elementary schools. And it was really, really focused on higher level thinking and opportunities um, to really engage with the learning. And a guest speaker came in mm -hmm. and observed mm -hmm. students in an academic conversation. And his takeaway was, oh my gosh, those kids are so smart. And it was a real awareness around when our students have opportunities to demonstrate that, they really soar. How are we creating access to those opportunities? Mm -hmm. are we, how are we differentiating? How are we scaffolding? How are we encouraging participation mm -hmm. so that all students are accessing such rich opportunities? Jane, any thoughts? The advice I would give is challenge your assumptions, you know. Oh, Don't nice. look at your students as a cookie cutter. Um, take the time to build relationships, get to know, and, and challenge any assumption you might have. Um, and then hold really high expectations because our students can succeed and they are succeeding and we want to encourage that. So when I think about advice to give to an administrator, it's, it is challenge your assumptions and how as a school team can you work collaboratively to make sure that every child, including ELLS, have the same opportunity to rich educational experience? Because personally, as an ESOL teacher, I fully expected my English learners to go to college and have successful careers, or if they didn't want to go to college, find something that made them happy in life to do. And it was the same expectation I had for my students when I was a classroom teacher. The expectations are different. We just have to set it up so that they can access those opportunities and be successful. Angela, Erica, Jane, Caitlin, you are just four members of the ESOL team. There's a lot of work to do. Good luck to everyone involved. For The Answer Key, I'm Sandra Brennan. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of the Department of Information Technology, Fairfax County Public Schools.